2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Today, we listened back to Forum's live-streamed event from KQED's new headquarters on October 8th. It featured Joanna Ho, author of Eyes That Kiss in the Corners, about a child's love of her Asian eyes, and YA novelist Lisa Moore Ramey, whose book Something to Say centers a black girl finding her voice. We talked about the importance of young readers seeing themselves in stories, and listeners shared what books made them feel seen. Forum is next, after this news. And welcome to KQED Forum's first virtual event from our new headquarters. And I'm thrilled tonight to, to be speaking with Joanna Ho and Lisa moore Remey. Their work is deeply committed to reflecting and giving voice to diverse young readers. In Joanna Ho's debut children's book, Eyes That Kiss in the Corners, Ho tells the story of a child's love of her Asian eyes. And in her newest book, Playing at the Border, a story of Yo-Yo Ma, Ho highlights Ma's 2019 performance at the U.S.-Mexico border to remind us to build bridges, not walls. Lisa moore Ramey's young adult novels, A Good Kind of Trouble and Something to Say, both center young black girls who embark on journeys to find their voices each in their own ways and stand up for their lives and their communities. And it is now my pleasure to welcome Lisa moore Ramey. Welcome to Forum Live. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. And also, welcome, Joanna Ho. Oh, thanks. I'm so thrilled to be here, too. Well, we're thrilled to have you as well. And let me start with you, Joanna. I remember reading the title of your book before seeing the cover, knowing who wrote it, and immediately having this glow of recognition that I knew exactly what you were talking about mm-hmm. with eyes that kiss in the corners. But I'd never heard it described that way. How did you come up with eyes that kiss in the corners?
1: Yeah, I, um, I get that question a lot. And I think for me, I was trying to think of a way to describe the shape of an Asian eye without using any terminology that would even hint at any of the derogatory ways that have historically been used to describe our eyes. So I wrestled a lot about that in my mind And actually the the phrase came to me one night. My son, my first child, he was probably two at the time and I was sort of snuggling him to sleep and I was just laying in bed thinking about how I could describe this shape. And um, it just seemed like they kiss. And I was like, oh, they kiss in the corners. And I like sat up in my bed and I (laughs) typed it in my phone really fast so I wouldn't forget. Um, But that's really, you know, it was a few weeks of really wrestling with words and language and it came together sort of in that moment at night with my son and you knew
2: immediately that yeah, you had something you were onto something there yeah. <laughs> when you grab your phone and put it in right. put it in your notes the book is often described as a book about a young Taiwanese girl learning to love her eyes mm-hmm. but i was struck by how immediately it felt like the book goes right into her loving her eyes mm-hmm. even though she seems to notice the differences of her mm-hmm. eyes from her peers mm-hmm. she it doesn't seem to phase her. She seems to immediately be saying, yes, their eyes are different, yeah. but my eyes are like this. Right. Or, and my eyes mm-hmm. are like this. Mm-hmm. Was that deliberate?
1: Yeah, it was. You know, in original and earlier forms of the book, I think there, were a much, there was a much more pronounced um, sense of like, I wish my eyes were like this, because that's so much how I felt as a child, wishing my eyes looked different, feeling like I couldn't be beautiful unless I had really big eyes and long lashes and um you know that's why we have great editors <laughs> but i think that i i really appreciate and love that it's much more nuanced um and that was a push from her in saying you know we we don't want to really compare and make and feel negative about it but um notice that there's a difference but i'm recognizing and i already know like the beauty and i think for me i really appreciate that you brought that up because I think this book is much more, less about like, I learn to love my eyes yes. and more about um, I learn to recognize my own power and that I recognize that power comes from my family and from my history and my heritage yes. and all of that comes together in who I am.
2: It almost changes who or what story it centers it, if the child is having a negative view yes, exactly. Of her eyes at the beginning. Yeah, Exactly. Do you mind reading the first few pages of Eyes That Kiss in the Corners? Yeah, of course. So we have
1: Eyes That Kiss in the Corners, and I have to say it's, um, I wrote it, and the illustrations are by Zong Ho, and they're so beautiful. Some people have eyes like sapphire lagoons with lashes like lace trim on ball gowns, sweeping their cheeks as they twirl. Big eyes, long lashes. Not me. I have eyes that kiss in the corners and glow like warm tea. My eyes are just like Mama's. Mama's eyes that kiss in the corners and glow like warm tea crinkle into crescent moons when she comes home from work. She scoops me in her arms, eyes sparkling like starlight, and tickles me until we laugh ourselves onto the floor. When Mama tucks me in at night, her eyes tell me I'm a miracle. In those moments when she's all mine, flecks of dancing gold tell me I'm hers
2: too. Joanna How reading from the eyes that kiss in the corners. <laughs> I know if you feel like we should clap right now. Lisa Mara May. The character in your newest book, Something to Say, also shares a trait with you. And that
3: trait, actually, is a fear of public speaking. Exactly, exactly. Um, she, unfortunately, was granted this gift of mine. You know, that I had this experience where I had to give a speech in class, and it was debilitating, it was frightening. I had never felt that way before. I felt like I was going to pass out. I was sweating. I was skipping over words. I just wanted out of that room, out of that space. And it was so horrible. And as I was working on something to say, you know, you're, you really want to create challenges for your characters. That's what makes a story interesting. And... I thought about this time of mine at school and I thought well that's a scene I can write really well <laughs> because I lived through that and so I made her suffer through that and I think that for a lot of people who have that fear they recognize that moment and it's something that it's hard to explain and people who don't have the fear they think you know well that's irrational and what's the problem it's just a speech but it can feel like death it can feel like you would rather do anything other than stand in front of people and have them judge you because that's what it feels like.
2: I understand that you also heard from people with a fear of public speaking who felt like they saw themselves in Janay in something to say what yeah. kind of responses
3: did you get? Well absolutely that's Probably the top response that I get from readers is that they um, were so pleased to see themselves in a book and it made them feel that they were not freaks, that they were not weirdos, that this fear that they had was something that someone else shared and they knew right away that it was something that I must know something about Um, which is funny because in in my first book, In A Good Kind of Trouble, The Girl Runs Track, and that's something I know nothing about (laughs) and had to totally fake. And this was, I think that this comes off more truly, this fear of public speaking, because of the fact that I did relate so much to it. And maybe also because of the fact that it's something I somehow, I don't know if I grew out of it or or what, but it was something that left me. I don't have that same fear, so I felt that I could speak to readers with some degree of hopefulness, and say, you know, this is something that you might overcome. You know, maybe not, but, but you might be able to get over it, and put yourself, you know, give yourself a chance to do that, um, because unfortunately, we can't really go through school or a job without having to talk in front of people at some point.
2: Yes. So you describe Janae as sort of an oddball, somebody who sees herself as not like everybody else and is okay. That's something that you hear a lot in the book, is that fine with me, right, if I don't (laughs) have a ton of friends or if I don't do certain things that people would expect kids my age to do. Why was it so important for her to be okay to have that constant refrain, even as family and others around her are, are pushing her in a different direction?
3: I, I love that question because it was really important to me. And I think it was because I've read a lot of books, I've seen a lot of kid movies where it seems that the point is if you're an oddball, by the end of the movie you won't be. Yes. By the end of the story, you'll be fine and we'll have fixed you in right. some way. I've had the makeover. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's not necessarily what everyone needs. Sometimes it's okay to be different, and I think the older that I've gotten, the more unusual, interesting people I've met, and I have such an appreciation for Oddballs. I think those are the people with really interesting stories. And I wanted this character to have it kind of like in your book, you know, where it's like, this isn't a negative. This isn't something to be ashamed of. Yes, your mother might think it's strange and may want you to fit in because that's what mothers do often. But you can be fine just the way you are. And I wanted any kid that read the book to walk away thinking, oh, okay, I, I can be unusual and okay. Those things are not mutually exclusive. So even though she's okay with
2: not having a ton of friends, for example, you do introduce this character named Aubrey. Can you tell us a
3: little bit about Aubrey and the inspiration <laughs> behind Aubrey? Oh, I just love Aubrey. You know, he is my golden retriever puppy. You know, like, he's just... <laughs> filled with exuberance, and he's also an oddball. You know? And I thought, who better to be a friend of Janae's than another person who isn't quite like everybody else um, and is okay with it also, but is very different from her. He wants to stand out, and I thought it was important too to show that there's many different ways of being your own type of person. Um, I felt she needed a bit of a foil to work against, and he was just fun to draw. You know, I, I, I felt really drawn to him. Um, I had a slight personal connection to him in that um, I had a cousin who died really young from leukemia, oh, and I, you know, it's one of those things that it happened very long ago when I was very young myself, and. There's so many more cases of of children surviving childhood leukemia, and I I love that, you know, so that was something too that I thought, you know, this is something that I want to shine a light on a little bit in the story because it's a special thing for kids to know too that, you know, some terrible things are survivable.
2: You're listening to Forum's live-streamed event on the evening of October 8th with writers Joanna Ho and Lisa Moore-Romey. I'm Mina Kim. We'll be right back after a short break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're listening back to a special live-streamed event on October 8th with Joanna Ho, author of Eyes That Kiss in the Corners, and YA novelist Lisa Moore-Romey, author of Something to Say. I asked Lisa to read a section from her book and tell us a bit about it.
3: So one of the things that's a little bit strange about Janae is that she really does think that she can control things with her mind. She thinks that she can make people do what she wants them to do if she just thinks it hard enough. And she's told Aubrey that she can do this and Aubrey doesn't believe her. But she's been told in class that they were gonna give a speech and then the teacher changes his mind and she's certain that she made him change his mind. I look back at Aubrey, now he knows. That's what I can do. For the rest of the period, I watch my hand write line after line of thoughts about a girl whose mother has button eyes, a girl who is sometimes a little invisible. I think about mice and spiders and Malcolm and G and my dad and wanting something too much. When the bell rings, it makes me jump. I quickly gather my things together so I can get to my last period, but when I get out into the hallway, Aubrey grabs my arm. You did not make Mr. Humphreys not assign a speech, he whispers. Well, tries to whisper, but he's so aggravated, his voice is husky but loud, and a few people glance over at us. I guess this is what being friends with someone means, them knowing what you're thinking before you've said a word. How do you know, I ask. Janae, I have to get to class, I say as I pull away. I've done awful things with my mind, and being sorry doesn't cut it, but making Mr. Humphreys change his mind about us giving speeches today, I'm not sorry about that at all.
2: Lisa (laughs) Morameh reading from Something to Say, and I should remind... Listeners and viewers, that we are talking about the importance of representation in children's books, young adult novels, with Lisa Morra May and Joanna Ho, and we invited our audience members to share their reflections on books or novels where they felt seen. So, some audience members, uh, some listeners, did in fact share reflections ahead of tonight's program, and I'd love to play a couple for you now.
5: I'm Anne. I was a voracious reader growing up. I finished probably three or four books a week, every week from the time I was in fourth grade until I graduated from high school. But I never really saw myself fully reflected in any of the of the kids and young, young adult books that I read. I uh, grew up in a small rural town in Western Michigan. Uh, it was a town of 4,000 and my family of five comprised a full third of the total non-white population in the town. So I never really saw myself in any of these books I read. I, um, You know, this was the late 70s and the 80s, and I don't know if it was because there were simply no books being written for um, kids and young adults at the time that featured um, Asian-American protagonists, or if it was just that my hometown library didn't have them on the shelves. But all I saw, you know, I saw aspects of myself in, in plenty of the books I read. In, uh, the irrepressible and flawed Ramona Quimby from Beverly Cleary's books and in the stubborn and loving Meg Murray from Madeline Langle's Wrinkle in Time. But it wasn't until I got to college that I actually read a young adult book that featured, uh, an Asian American character and it was this book, Finding My Voice by Marie Lee. It reflected my experience growing up in a small town, often being, you know, the only Asian person in my class, you know, even the smallest things like um, not knowing how to put on eyeshadow because I lacked that fold that tells you when to stop um, that all the other girls had. Um, But mostly it was, you know, the idea, the sensation of of wearing all your differences on the outside instead of having them tucked away on the inside like everybody else had. I think it's really important for kids to see themselves reflected in the world around them, whether it's walking down the street or um, on the pages of the books they read. Well, thanks, Anne, for that
2: comment with so many relatable details. And I do want to throw the prompt that we asked our audience members to both of you. So Joanna Ho, Is there a book that stands out for you or a moment when you read something where you felt really seen? Yeah, I I mean,
1: what she shared, I resonate so deeply with the lava. I grew up in Minnesota. There were not a lot of Asian people in Minnesota. Um, And I didn't read anything with Asian characters and the things that I'd read. The very few things all were very stereotypical um, racist, you know, really. And it wasn't until high school when I read The Joy Luck Club, which I think for a lot of people my age was the first... Um, book that had all Asian characters and I could see I was just the first time I ever saw any experiences that resin, that you know, really mirrored some of my own even though they weren't they didn't really, didn't experience any of those same things but like the relationships that the family members had, the way they talked the things they talked about I think that, I remember reading that like whoa, it's the first time I realized that I could be in a
3: book you know, what about you yeah, very, very similar. You know, I, growing up, I read all the time. It was my, truly my favorite thing to do. And I didn't read any books with black characters. Mm. I did not not one. The first book that I saw a black girl on the cover was The Skin I'm In by Sharon Flake, and um, which I just devoured. And I think I might have been in college, but at least in high school. And you think about that, how sad that is. And it's really telling that when I first started writing, my characters were all white. Because those were the books that I had read. All the books that I'd read about young, middle school kids were all white kids. And so that's where my brain went right away. Um, So Thank you, Sharon. wherever you are for writing
5: the skin I'm in.
3: Well, uh, let's hear a couple more
2: reflections that we got from listeners.
5: Hi, my name is Inar Shafiq. I'm 13 years old, and one book I can relate to is Karma Kalar's Mustache. It's about um, an Indian girl who lives in America. Her mom is white and her dad is Indian. and she starts to notice that she has a little mustache it's about her struggles with that. Thank you.
6: I'm Jusper Weibel, and this is Anna on the Edge by AJ Sass, and I relate to the
0: main character
6: and the second main character, Anna and Hayden, because they're still figuring out their gender and aren't really sure, like me, I'm like non-binary, so I relate to both of them. My name is Lincoln Chase, and the book that I related to was Spiderwick because he also has temper problems, and it makes me feel like I'm not the only one with temper problems.
2: Well, Lincoln, you are definitely not the only one with temper problems. So I want to talk now about your newest book, um, Playing at the Border. Could you talk a little bit about the project and event that inspired Sure. this book show yeah. um, Yo-Yo Ma,
1: the round cellist, he embarked on a, what he calls the Bach Project, where he's playing the Bach cello suites in 36 countries around the world. And one of the places that he um, chose to play was at the border in Laredo, Texas, so right on the Rio Grande um, between Mexico and Texas. And he did this in 2019, really right at the, I wouldn't say the height, but right in the midst of a family separation, of a lot of talk about building a border wall, of turning away people from borders, and in general, a lot of anti-refugee, anti-asylum seeker rhetoric. And he was very clear in his statement when he was performing that music, that culture, builds bridges and not walls. And when I saw an, an article about this this event, I knew that I had to write this story for, one, because my, um, my mom, my parents are, and, you know, are all immigrants, and so I felt something very deeply about what he was saying, um, but also because my mom used to play Yo-Yo Ma, playing the Bach the Suites when I was growing up really loud on the weekend, and so when I hear that music, it reminds me of her. And, um, and so it just felt like this really came... This story spoke to me, not only in what he was saying, but, you know, what he was playing and who he is and what he represents.
2: Would you like to read a oh, little to. bit of Playing at the Border? The <laughs> sure. story of Yo-Yo Ma. Yep, it's
1: Playing at the Border, story of Yo-Yo Ma, um, also illustrated by Teresa Martinez. On the banks of the Rio Grande, feet planted on the soil of one nation, eyes gazing at the shores of another yo Ma played a solo accompanied by an orchestra of wind and water. Fed by the snow-capped mountains of Colorado and flowing into the Gulf of Mexico, the Rio Grande became a boundary dividing two countries that used to be one. yo Ma made music on riverbanks that separated people into Mexican-American citizen-immigrant, though they, we, were, are, one. Feet planted on the soil of one nation facing the shores of another, Yo-Yo Ma closed his eyes as music poured from his heart through
2: his hands. So my oldest read that book and wanted me to ask you a question about the page where you read, though we were our one. one. And it flows and we can show our audience it. it flows in a vertical line back and forth yeah though they we were are one and i was wondering what that sentence meant why it was written that way yeah. and whether you had wanted it to be written in that mm-hmm. sort of vertical and lyrical way yeah i did i think that um
1: it was really intentional in terms of where we wanted to say uh, or how i wanted the words placed And every time I read it, I read it in a different order. So sometimes I read, they were one, they were, we are one. And sometimes I read, they, we were, are one. Yes. (laughs) Um, And and the reason I did it that way is because, you know, if we really think about the history of the border between Mexico and the United States, um, you know, it didn't always used to exist there. Mexico, you know, the Mexican-American border used to encompass like almost half the western part of the United States. And we, when you really want to think about who was illegal first, like it was, you know, people, well, first it was all indigenous land. And then um, when well, we're really talking about Mexico and the U.S., people from the U.S. were sort of hopping over the border into what is now Texas and into what is now, you know, California. And so when I talk about the border, you know, I really want it to be clear that we're, we're keeping people out of our borders and Yo-Yo Ma's playing across these borders because they're very arbitrary, like who's Mexican, who's American, who's a citizen, who's an immigrant, like we really are all one people. Historically, they were all in the same country and now we've divided the countries and say that we're different people, but really, um, we're one. And so we were in the past and we really are now, we're all humans. And I think that's what I was trying to say is like blurring the lines of these borders.
2: We're talking with Joanna Ho and Lisa Moore-Romey about their work, which centers and encourages self-love, the experiences of children of color. It celebrates multiculturalism and immigration as well. And really we're talking about the importance of young readers of all backgrounds seeing themselves. And if you've read a book by Joanna Ho or Lisa moore May, what are your questions for them? Or if you have a memory of a time that you saw yourself or felt represented in a book, whether as a child or an adult, you can tell us. And we heard uh, from Freddie, I believe. Hi, I'm
6: Freddie, and I'm seven years old. And I am to Anne from Anne Green Gables because she makes big imaginary world inside her head. And I do the same when I'm falling asleep or when I'm in the window seat to pass the time.
2: Thanks, Freddie. And Sarah asks, why did you both choose to write for children
3: instead of adults? Lisa Morave? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when I first I thought I would try to write a book. Um, I did try to write for adults. I was a big Stephen King fan and I thought, well, let's try my hand at that. And it wasn't as satisfying as I thought it would be. Um, I have children, they are big readers like I am, and I wanted to challenge myself to see if I could write something that they would enjoy. and it was, it was tricky. My, my son is really difficult to get him to like anything. Um, and my daughter was similar to the, liking the books that I liked growing up, the Judy Bloom type books. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, let me see if I can do this. Um, I think that I thought stupidly that it might be easier to (laughs) write for young people. Um, That is not true at all. I found out really quickly that that wasn't true. But I did fall in love with with the genre. I I love writing for kids. It just, it makes me happy. I like meeting those readers too. So um, I think that's just the the sweet spot for me. And those are the voices now that I hear in my head when I sit down to tell a story.
2: What about you? I'm laughing
1: because when I first started writing picture books, I also thought... You know, sometimes you read and you're like, oh, anyone could do that. And then you're like, oh, just kidding. It's actually really hard. Um, I I love writing for kids um, and teenagers. I work with teenagers. I am the vice principal at a high school in the Bay Area. And so I've just always been, you know, I was that kid who was like four and five and 10. And my goal was to like become a babysitter so I could babysit other people's kids. Um, I just love kids. I think that they kids to teenagers really the way they see the world is so smart they see everything and they know everything and they're so critical but they're also so hopeful and so I feel like when we write for kids we're writing to change the world because you have you can have an impact and they can take that and they have the power to go forth and and you know use the perspective and the imagination that they have to do something really different and so I feel like it's, there's so much possibility in yes. writing for children. I also love that um, we get illustrations, because I think <laughs> that that adds so many layers to the stories we're trying to tell.
2: Yes, and I, I know that you don't get to choose the illustrator no. of your books, which is kind of incredible when you think about the interplay of yeah. the illustrations and the story with a picture book. But I was struck by how both they're different illustrators mm-hmm. for your two books mm-hmm. Eyes That Kiss in the Corners and Playing at the Border, but they o- both end with an image of. Butterflies, mm. and I was curious if you had suggested that, or if you have a relationship with butterflies in some way that they wanted to integrate. Yeah. But did you notice that similarity? I did notice that, and I was like, "Oh, butterflies
1: again," <laughs> <laughs> not in a bad way, like. But I was like, "Oh, okay, this is a thing." But no, I love um, to your point. Of um, not being able to choose the illustrator, yes. I think there's a sense initially of being like oh i 'm letting some you know this thing, my baby go, but what I've really learned is that there 's something really beautiful that happens when you know, you hand over your words and someone takes them and makes them their own and adds all these layers to the story that you that, you know, that i didn 't even think of, or to deepen it in some way yes. where the words come alive and have even more meaning. But I think perhaps the butterfly theme is because I tend to write books about change, about power, about creating change, or um, you know, in, in Isaac Kiss in the Corners, it talks about how her eyes are a revolution. Yes. And I feel like perhaps that's one reason the butterfly theme came through, because you know, you start in the, as a caterpillar, and all the same pieces are there in a caterpillar, like the DNA, and the parts don't change but something changes and it becomes a butterfly. And so I think in some ways both books follows a theme like that.
2: You're listening to my conversation from last week with writers Joanna Ho and Lisa moore More after the break. I'm Nina Kim. <laughs> ¶¶
6: (音楽) ¶¶¶¶
2: This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're listening back to a special live-streamed event on October 8th with children's author Joanna Ho and YA novelist Lisa moore Lisa, I want to ask you about A Good Kind of Trouble. Um, when you were talking about trying to write in a way you know your kids would, would be into it, like, <laughs> which is a high bar, honestly. I mean, yes, that's, that's a high bar. Um, did that play into your decision to write A Good Kind of Trouble? And can you talk about... Your goals is a message with A Good Kind of Trouble as well.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, writing A Good Kind of Trouble was a really long process. You know, the story changed over the years. And when I first started, I, I wanted to entertain my daughter. I, I thought about things that I had gone through Um, when I was younger, and saw that she was going through some of the same things, some of the same racial divide issues that um, I saw happening at school. But when I started writing the book, there was no such thing as Black Lives Matter, because I started writing the book before 2013, um, and it wasn't until I saw that movement um, occurring and I was still working on the book. I had written a version and then written another version and kept revising it. I didn't have an agent, um, so I had all the time in the world to work on it. And it started becoming really clear to me that I needed to start changing what the book was about because I was writing a contemporary story about a young black girl living in Los Angeles that would be seeing these images on television the same way that I was. She would be seeing the marches, she would be seeing the protests, and disturbingly, she would be seeing evidence of police brutality mm-hmm. against black people. And that's a hard thing to live with when you're black yourself and you're young, and it seems so important to include that in the book. I. I'm, just kind of aghast at the fact that when I was writing it, I thought, by the time this book comes out, this will seem so dated. Mm -hmm. Because I knew how long, you know, the book didn't come out until 2019. So about, you know, 2017, I was like, you know, we're not really hearing so much about Black Lives Matter and, and people won't feel that this is as relevant. And then I was kind of horribly proven completely wrong about that, and you know, got a lot of messages from people saying how timely it was. But when Black Lives Matter first started, I had a lot of non-black friends who were very confused about it and asked me questions about it and felt almost attacked by the movement. Um, and I tried to explain to them what it stood for and that it wasn't anti-white, that it wasn't anti-anything. Um, and then I thought, oh, I have this wonderful soapbox, if you will. Like, I have this book where no one can argue with me in the pages <laughs> of the book. And I can explain my point of view. And that's actually one of the most lovely things that to come out of the book is hearing from readers, a lot of adult readers saying, I finally get it. I finally understand when the teacher is explaining in the classroom, when mama is explaining what Black Lives Matter means, I finally understand. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I was trying to do.
2: I'm so struck by hearing you say that, I think you said aghast at how timely the book is. Mm-hmm. Did you have the same concern when you were doing Playing at the Border? This was a 2019 event, mm-hmm. right? Very specific to mm-hmm. that, that maybe it would not be quite as timely as sadly... It is. Yeah, I think that I have that fear about every
1: book. You know, truly. You know, for example, for playing at the border, for sure, there's a sense the way that the news cycle works. um, You know, there's like the hot story for the moment, but this is people's lives, you know. Just because it's not in the news doesn't mean people aren't still at the border. And unfortunately, you know, when I wrote it, we were talking about family separation. And then the week before my book came out, we were talking about... Um, Haitians coming across the border and being met with whips and border patrol on horses, and, um, and and the reality for me is that when the more I did research and I've been continually doing research for future projects, is I've learned that the border patrol was created um, to keep out Chinese immigrants who are trying to come to the country who are illegal because of the Chinese Immigration Act. And so the policies we have at the border were actually you know about policing and about raids and deportation. That all actually started to keep out Chinese people, and so that I didn't even know when I wrote this book. But I think what's sad to me is that um, books like ours are timely, and they continue to be timely because there are so many things that we need to continue to change and to push against, not only in our country but in the world. You know, for *Eyes That Kiss in the Corners*. When I wrote this book, I thought I, nobody's going to read this book. I used to think I would just be like, if one parent or one child just knows that this book is here I would be so grateful because it took I mean it took over a year and a half to sell this book to a publisher and so you just get this idea like nobody wants Asian stories and so for it to have the reach that it's had it's truly um, mind-blowing but I think it gets that question of timeliness where for in some stories it never feels timely because you've never seen it and then other stories are timely too timely all the time because things don't change.
2: What have you found helpful in dealing with rejections or dealing with this <laughs> incredible story that you want to tell that no one wants to pick up? <laughs> I think it's just to
1: keep writing. I think that's the thing. Is I think writing is a little bit of a painful <laughs> process. It's like lots of rejections all the time. Um, and, then, and then critique, you know, once it comes out. And so I think it's just believing. You have to believe deeply in the stories you're trying to tell yes. and you
2: believe in them even when people say they don't want them and just to keep writing. I think you're starting to answer Neha's question. Neha asks, do you have any advice for aspiring writers who would like mm-hmm. to become published one day? And Lisa, similarly, how have you <laughs> dealt with the process, <laughs> right, of, of trying to get your story out there and what is your advice for aspiring, aspiring writers or YA novelists?
3: Oh, you know, the, the main thing is that you have to not give up. You know, one of the best piece of advice I heard when I was dealing with, you know, year after year of rejection and so many passes from, <laughs> from agents is the difference between, you know, the people who make it as authors and the ones that don't are the ones who don't give up Mm. that that's the only difference. And I thought, if that's true, then I can become an author because I won't give up and I'll just keep working on it. Now, there are other things too. I mean, the other big thing is that you have to be willing to listen to criticism. Mm. You have to be willing to listen to feedback, which means you have to be brave enough to share your words with people. Mm. And that can be terrifying because the truth is, is that if you don't get honest feedback, you really won't get better, and you, mm. you will stay in the same place. So listen to feedback and don't give up.
2: Yes, and seeing rejection as an opportunity. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs>
3: um,
2: I think we touched on Rose's question. Rose asks, how do you decide what illustrations work for your story? Do you mm-hmm. get to work with the illustrator? Mm-hmm. But uh, it's an interesting question because what if you aren't loving the illustrations <laughs> <laughs> like what kind of interaction can you have yeah, I you know I've been really lucky in
1: the <laughs> books that I've, oh, yes, I've loved amazing. all the illustrations and um and and the reality is when you as, as a picture book writer when you when I turn my text over to my editor and we're done editing we're done with our final edits it's really out of my hands I don't you know they might show me drafts um, they might send me, like, the sketches and then drafts, and maybe I can give a little bit of feedback. But I actually, you know, initially, it, like I, I think I was saying before, it's a little bit terrifying, because what if, you know, the, as a fear, what if I don't like the illustrations? <laughs> but um, what I think happens is I realize that storytelling and book creation, especially in picture books, but um, also in novels, is really a team effort so even though we say like Joanna who wrote this book or Lisa Marumi wrote this book, the book itself is really the product of a whole team, like your editors, your art directors, the people telling, working with the illustrator. And so I find a lot of beauty in that process. So there are maybe some images where I'm like, well, I thought it should have been this way. <laughs> but later on, I find out for, I'll give you an example. For example, um, an Isaac Kiss in the Corners these end pages, they're yellow and they're flowers. And in the beginning, they're closed. And in the end, they're open with butterflies. butterflies right? <laughs> um, but it turns out that they made this color yellow because it was based on Constance Wu's dress from like a premiere of Crazy Rich Asians. And that really speaks to like this history of the yellow peril and the discrimination and the racism that Asian people have faced in this country. And she was really wearing this dress to show to like take back that color and take back the power and the beauty and the color. And I had no idea. Like if I, if I was in charge of writing this, I never would have thought of that. So that kind of layer is what I mean by um, the team effort and the vision that it takes for everyone. So there's something that I actually really enjoy now about being like, here, <laughs> take my book and do something really beautiful with it. Because I know that whatever you have in mind is going to m- expand the story even more.
2: Lisa, you talked about how you did not see yourself in Judy Bloom books, though it sounded like you were a voracious reader and you really enjoyed them. And I think there are certain experiences where we can see ourselves and we derive a lot of value. And so I'm wondering if you can articulate what it is, what is the value of seeing your own race or your class or your gender or your abilities reflected in books that is so vital? Um often people want to stress sort of the universality of experience. But what what is it
3: that makes it such an important piece of writing? Oh gosh, I I think it's so valuable. I mean, when you don't see yourself, you don't know what the possibilities are. You're so limited and you don't even realize I think that you're limited and you go through life thinking you can be only one thing, you also go through life with people looking at you as if you can only be one thing because their experience has been very limited. For some people, the only person of color that they might have met is in a movie or a commercial or something that is not truly representative But you start thinking about that you know I talk to young kids about and a lot of times when I go to to schools I'm talking to a group of kids that are all white you know it's it's a not very diverse group of kids and I try to get them to imagine what it would be like for them if they never saw themselves in things or the only time they did it was such a horrible representation and it made it seem like there was something wrong with the way that you are so one of the things that is really important to me with my work and I think that I I see this with with all the other authors I know too of of color of of telling so many different types of stories because it's not just about there being a black character in in a book it's that It's a different story that you might pick up. That it is a contemporary, that it's a fantasy, that it's sci fi, that it's set in the past, that it's set in the future, that we can be anything and do anything. You know, there are children who, black children, who did not think that they could be astronauts because they did not see a black astronaut until they did. And then they knew that that was possible. And that's what we're doing with our stories, for the most part, is saying, these things are possible for you. And just like the Black Lives Matter movement it's just saying we matter, Mm -hmm. that's what these stories I think are saying is that you matter. You matter enough that there's a book that you're in. You know, that this is a different time for you, that you've always mattered, but it wasn't obvious before. and And now we want it to be obvious.
2: You're listening to my conversation with writers Joanna Ho and Lisa Morrame. Ho's latest book is Playing at the Border, a story of Yo-Yo Ma, and Lisa Morrame is the author of Something to Say. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I like your point about also, like, multiple depictions. I, I heard that it was important to you that your character in Something to Say is middle class. Why was that important?
3: I think that there's been I remember when— um, I was a kid growing up, and I would see shows that depicted black people as always seeming to be suffering. And I thought, you know, well, that's, that's a valid and true story. There's a lot of that. But there wasn't depictions of black people doing well. Um, I think the Jeffersons was, like, the first show that I saw where it was like, okay, well, there's, there's one. But I wanted... I wanted it to be clear that you know we can we can be at this end of the spectrum or this end of the spectrum um, we're everywhere and we fit in everywhere. Um, I grew up middle class and so it was something that I knew something about. Um, I didn't really understand the differences when I was young, but I thought you know I wanted I want in a good kind of trouble certainly it's like I wanted my character to have both mom and dad at home mm-hmm. for um, it to be a happy loving family for it to be apparent that this is a normal family <laughs> just like all the other families out there mm-hmm. so again a child can be seen and know that there's nothing unusual about this mm-hmm.
2: And similarly back to you, Joanna Ho, in terms of just the added value <laughs> of representation yeah. in books in broad, varied <laughs>
1: ways. I mean, I think a lot of what Lisa has shared, I agree with 10,000%. I think that um, to be able to see yourself in books, to see yourself in movies is... Um, like an affirmation of your own worth and your value in the world. I think what happens when you don't see it, I know what happens when you don't see it, is you. there's this invisibility, like you've been erased out of the world, and you don't even recognize that erasure because you don't know anything different. I feel like that's how it was for me growing up, and the first time I read Joy Luck Club was like, oh, I didn't know this was possible. But you internalize so much of that erasure, and seeing yourself in stories, seeing yourself, you know, in lots of different stories, I feel like gives us, and gives young people, but gives me, as someone who grew up not seeing myself in stories, power to feel like I have a voice, my voice matters, my stories matter, my history matters, my family matters, and like, I can carve a space for myself in this world that is trying to push me out to the side. And um, that's what I think it does for people.
2: Well, Joanna Ho, Lisa (laughs) Moramay, thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you.
3: Well, thank you so much. (laughs) It's such a pleasure to be here, too. You've
2: been listening to Forum's special virtual event, recorded October 8th at KQED's new headquarters, with authors Joanna Ho and Lisa Moramay. The event was produced by Ariana Prail, Judy Campbell, Susan Britton, and Lance Gardner. It was presented by Ryan Davis, Ryan Peters, and Dennis O'Melveny. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend no